0: You'll just multiply, multiply, multiply and give it meaning. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. Let your heart hold that and to the path of the Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out at the entrance of the city gates. Do you remember the first job you ever had? I'm going to tell you about mine in just a second. Before I do that, though, what I want you to do is I want you to turn to somebody near you. And if, if you already know their story, turn to somebody else. And, um, and ask them what their very first job was. Okay, if you haven't had a job yet, Um, what do you want your first job to be? Or if you can't think of one, I'll give you one. Ready? Okay, go, just a few, few moments, real quick. First job. I'd love to go around and try to figure out a way to find out the, the coolest first job ever. Uh, we don't have time for that, so I'll just tell you what my first job was. Um, I actually, my very first job was um, I worked for a church. And before you think, wow, how spiritual that young man must have been. Um, or how, how Jeremiah 1.5, that God had his hand on Ryan's life from a very young age. Before you go there, let me tell you how I got said job at the church. I was um, required by the state of Colorado to be of service to my community, okay? Uh, Listen... Fresh, right after middle freshman year, caught up with me a little bit in high school there and, um, and made some bad decisions, got caught, praise the Lord, and was asked to be of service to my community. And so I was of service to my church community and I actually stacked all the chairs in this big sanctuary, in, in a big sanctuary, it wasn't here, that would be way too ironic, um, <clears throat> but we had similar chairs and I would stack them and I would wheel them into the closet after every service, every Sunday, and um, that was my job. I did such a great job. Uh, uh, they hired me to actually do it after I was done. So um, every Sunday afternoon, I would have my little radio set up, freshman year of high school, a little radio set up on the stairs of the church, listening to the Bronco game, praise the Lord, and doing my job. Now, I had a complicated uh, relationship with work from the beginning, okay, because I just wanted to get it done, get over with, so I could go actually watch the Bronco game, not just listen to it. But I, I think a lot of us, if we were to be honest, our, our, our relationship with work is a little bit complicated. Anybody want to say, yeah, it is, it's, I have a complicated relationship with work? We do. Um, part of it is because we spend an awful lot of time at our jobs, I mean, think about it. How much of your waking hours are actually spent working? Now, this is sort of the average for uh, Americans at this point in time. They say, roughly, we live somewhere around 78 years. So if you sort of divide up the time by, by how you spend it, how we spend our time typically, here's what they found out. Through a number of different surveys, through whether it's World Bank, Bureau of Labor Statistics, They said that we spend 28.3 years of our life, when it's all said and done, sleeping. Now, some of you spend a little bit more, some of you spend a little bit less. This isn't a commercial for a mattress um, company, but you might want to invest in a good mattress. I don't know. If you're going to spend that much time sleeping, go for it, okay? Next on that list, though, the second most allotted time you and I spend in our lives is working. We spend... 10.5 years of our life working. Okay, so you you go into a few, um, do a little bit of research, and here's what you'll find right now, that well over 50% of people say they dislike their job. 50% 50% of people say they like their job. Now, that's down in 1987. It was 40% of people said they didn't like their job. Now it's right around 52 53%, depending on which surveys you find. So over, statistically speaking, half of us in this room, over half of us would say we're going to spend 10.5 years of our life doing something that we don't really love a whole lot. Not only that, but a recent study put out by Gallup, um, survey, the Gallup poll said that um, happiness in our job is actually one of the main indicators or main um, predictors of being successful in the workplace. Do you know that? That the happier you are at your workplace, the more productive you are. The more you enjoy going to work, the better job you do. And it's a cyclical pattern, isn't it? So you stack all these things on top of each other. We spend a lot of our time working. Many of us don't like what we do, And our productivity and our success in our job is in large part driven by how much we enjoy what we're doing. So we're in a little bit of a tough place with with work, aren't we? I'm calling it we we have a complicated relationship with our work life. Now, what if, what if there was a, a small mind shift, just a small change we could make that would redefine the way that we spend these 40-plus hours a week or these 10 years of our life? What if, what if there's just a small tweak that, as the Scriptures press on us, that we could, we could make in, in our heart and in our thinking that would really dramatically change that time and, in many ways, redeem it? See, because I, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but the Scriptures speak a, a lot to our work life. They speak a lot to what happens, not just on a Sunday morning for one hour, but to what happens in the 40 plus hours we spend in a cubicle or in a field or in an office, wherever you are. The scriptures speak to you, and they speak to the way that we go about our work. And I believe this morning that the Bible wants to teach us all how to find greater purpose in the work that we do, whether it's as a mom or, or as a missionary, whether it's as an accountant or as an architect, whether it's as a, someone who is in business or teaching or trench digging, whatever you do, I'm convinced that the scriptures want to press on us and push us into more joy and meaning in these 10 and a half years that we'll spend in our jobs. Now, given that we spend that much time there, would you agree with me? This is sort of important. Yes? Yeah, okay. So let's just ask, what what does the Bible say about work? And we're in the book of Proverbs. If you have your Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 16 with me. Proverbs chapter 16. If you've been with us this summer, we're in a series in the book of Proverbs, and Proverbs are all about really practical wisdom. Solomon, the author of many of the Proverbs, wants to press on his audience, his son specifically, and his family, and how to live in line with the way that God has actually created the world. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is stepping into light, stepping into reality, stepping into truth, and saying, we're going to live our lives in the way that God has designed us to live our lives. And so, praise the Lord, the Bible doesn't skip out on telling us how we should operate in our Work. Proverbs chapter 16, starting in verse 1, reads like this. The plans of the heart belong to man, but it's the answer of the tongue that's from the Lord. The ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. And here's where I want to camp out today. Commit your what? Work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. All right. now the skeptics in the room, even, even those that are, are people of faith are going, it can't be that simple. It can't be that simple, right? That all we have to do is commit our work to the Lord, and then he'll establish our plan. So whatever we dream, whatever we hope, if we commit it to him, he's going to just put his rubber stamp on it and go, now you got it. Now you got it. Remember, remember, the Proverbs are, are principles. They're not what? They're not promises, okay? So this is a general abiding principle of the way that God has wired the world to work. You may go, hey, sometimes this doesn't work for me. And Solomon would go, no, I get that. I I understand that. But generally, this is true. And this holds up. But we've got to dive into the words a little bit. Because the words in this verse 3 really matter. In the King James version of this same scripture, it says this. Commit thy works unto the Lord, and and thy thoughts shall be established. A little bit different. Commit thy works unto the Lord, and thy thoughts shall be established. In the New Living Translation, it says, Commit your actions to the Lord, and your plans will succeed. This word commit in, in the Hebrew is literally the word to throw off or to throw aside. It was used when somebody would walk up to a well that had a covering on it, and they would take the covering off the well and they would go and put it off to the side so you could access the water that was down in the well. It's this picture of carrying a burden that you say, ah, I'm not going to carry that anymore. I'm not going to carry that in the same way. That's, that's not going to weigh me down. So, so throw off your work or your actions, your deeds, the, what you do in life, the way that you live 24 hours a day. Throw that off. To the Lord, give it to him, not to go back and pick it back up, but trust him with it. And your plans, a way better translation of this word plans is thoughts or mind. So if you roll away or throw off your work to the Lord, if you trust him with it, your mind will be established. It's this picture of a foundation that a house is built on. So put it all together, what Solomon's saying. He's saying that when we approach our work in such a way, where we take it off of our shoulders and put it on God's, and the song Aaron wrote beautifully ties in, that we trust him to build something, trust him to multiply, trust him to make the meaning. Then we take it off of our shoulders, all that pressure, and we put it on him It's not that God says yes to every dream that we have. It's that God says yes to the peace and the security of our, what? Minds. You'll be founded in him. So here's the promise of the scriptures here, or the principle that leads us to how we approach our work. The work surrendered to God. leads to a a mind secure in God. A work surrendered to God. God, this is yours. I want you to do with it what you will. I want you to make of it what you will. I want you to be not only the Lord over my life and the Lord over my salvation, but I want you to be the Lord over those 10.5 years that I'm gonna spend in a cubicle or in a field or in an office or in a boardroom, whatever it looks like for you. God, I want you to be Lord over that as well. And and what Solomon says is when you throw that off to him, your mind can sort of take a deep breath and go, oh, yeah, that was a lot of pressure to carry. That that was a lot of weight to try to make meaning out of all of that time and all of that energy and all of that effort. So the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Colossae, so whatever you do, so you fill in whatever your occupation is here. Whatever you do. Are you you a mom? Whatever you do. Are you a business person? Whatever you do. Are you, are you an engineer? Whatever you do. Work what? Heartily. Like like work hard. As for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, work for him. Work for him. And see, when our work is surrendered to God, we step back into the blessing of God because you and I would probably agree that part of the reason that 52.3% of us would raise our hands and go, man, I'm not sure I love my job is because we're wrestling with the way it connects to God's greater purpose, to to actually leaving a legacy, to doing something significant. And so here's what I want to do. I just want to take a brief moment And try to reframe work for us, okay? So I want to give you three things work is designed to be, okay? And then for the rest of the time, I, I want to teach us collectively from the scriptures how we can literally throw off our work to the Lord, all right? So three things that work is designed to be. Number one, you are wired to work for provision, okay? For provision. To provide for your friends, for your family, for the food that's on your table, I think one of the greatest blessings in being a dad is to sit around the table and to watch my kids eat and to know that they have enough and to know that they have clothes on their back and that they're able to do the things that they love to do. I, I, I love being able to provide for the people that I love. Who's with me? Yeah, it's one of the great blessings of work, provision. The second is contribution, contribution. And not just to your family, but to the greater good, the common good of our society. And so here's what's happened. We've, we've drawn a distinction between secular jobs and sacred jobs. So some jobs are good and blessed by God because God uses them. So, um, for example, my job, right, would be considered a, quote-unquote, sacred job. But other jobs, if you, listen, if you do plumbing, if you do, unless you do my plumbing, then it's sacred. But, uh, right? <laughs> okay. Other jobs are, well, those are, those are secular jobs. Did you know you can't find that in the scriptures? And we've, we've lost the idea and the reality that every job that contributes to the common good of humanity, which in some way they all do, is a sacred job. So Martin Luther, back in um, the 16th century, said, hey, we often pray, God, give me this day my daily bread. Right? Anybody prayed that? If you've prayed the Lord's Prayer, you've prayed that. Okay? And Luther said, we've got to think about how God answers that prayer, because he does answer that prayer. But think about how he answers it. How many of you have seen a loaf of bread fall out of the sky? And no hands in the air, just in case you're scared to look. Okay? Nobody's seen it. Okay? The Israelites did, but we haven't seen it. So how does God answer the prayer, give us today our daily bread? Well, a farmer goes to work, and a farmer tills a field, and a farmer plants seed in a field, and God brings the rain, and the farmer has an irrigation system that waters it also, and then in harvest time, the farmer goes and he picks the grain. And then he harvests the grain. And then he sells the grain. And he sells the grain to somebody who then bakes the grain. And then somebody comes and picks up the bread and takes it to the store. And then somebody else stocks the bread on the store. It's really a wonder that all this bread shows up, okay? Okay. All right. So somebody else stocks the bread. Somebody sells you the bread, okay, right? You then get in your car that's maintained by some mechanic, drive home to your house that was built presumably by a carpenter, sit at your table that you built from Ikea, okay? And so it's Swedish, your table, it's Swedish. But so you sit down at your table, you pray, God, thank you for our bread. And God's going, you're welcome. And you can also thank the farmer and the harvester, and the baker, and the stalker and and all of these jobs. And what Martin Luther argued was you could do this with any occupation to see the way that they're contributing to the good of society and culture. So we work for provision, we work for contribution, and we work because it's in our bones to be creative. To make something of the world that God has made is a human endeavor, and you look at it from the beginning of time, people have been saying, we should make something of what God has made. It's called culture, creating culture. It is not unique for us to want to contribute, to want to make something. It's in our bones So whatever you do is for provision, is for contribution, and it's because God has put it in you to be creative. So this morning, one of the things I want to do is I just want to redeem work a little bit and say it's not just a job that you're called to do. Whatever it is that you're called to do, it is a calling. It's a vocation. And here's the way I would define that word, vocation. Vocation is simply this. It's our call to bear the image of God faithfully. By living with God for the world. With God for the world. That we remember that we are people created in the image of God. And by the way, being workers is part of God's creation, not part of the fall of humanity. Okay? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, before sin ever enters into the picture, God approaches Adam in the garden, and it says, and God took the man, took Adam, and put him in the garden of Eden to what? Work it. Work it, to work it, and to keep it. This is before sin enters into the picture, before the fall of humanity, you and I are called to carry the image of God by living with God. Not not just for God, but living with God for the good of his world. So what does that look like as a teacher? What does that look like in business? What does that look like in marketing? What, what, is that, what does that look like in real estate? What does that look like where God has placed you? Because all work is sacred. All work is sacred because we provide because we contribute, because we create, and it's what God designed us to do. So the question becomes, okay, Paul said, all right, that's reframed work a little bit for me, but how do we really roll it off? How do we say, God, this is yours, and I I I want you to make much of it. What does that actually look like? I'm so glad you asked, because the Proverbs talk a lot about that truth, and that reality. So let me give you four ways that we throw it off, throw, four ways we roll it over to God and say, God, I want you to be not just Lord over my salvation, but Lord over my work. You ready? Both of you are, so let's do it. <laughs> Proverbs 26, verse 13 says this. The sluggard, and we're going to re- read this word a lot today, which is awesome, um, I just like saying it. So, there's a lot of verses we'll read that talk about the sluggard. The sluggard says, There is a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. What's he doing? He's painting this picture of somebody that's like trying to push back against their calling and responsibility to work by making all sorts of excuses. I, could, I couldn't possibly go to work today. There's a lion in the road. I mean, how many of you guys haven't run into a lion in the streets on your way to work? It was as rare for them as it is for us, okay? So for the person to say, listen, I, the dog ate my homework, right? If you're a teacher, you've heard something to that effect, right? Or we're, we are the king of excuses. We make them all the time. And so here's the way that we start to roll off or surrender or commit our work to God, that our excuses start to give way to execution. Okay, and instead of making excuses as to why I can't get the job done or why it's going to take too long to do that, or this system that's created is absolutely ridiculous. Does anybody have some ridiculous systems at the work that they do? Okay? Wait, can we just put your hand up? Just, I'm just curious. Yeah, most of us, Right? It's called working in a fallen organization. Not every system works perfectly. And here's the humbling part. If you're ever the person who's in charge of the systems, they won't work perfectly when you're in charge either. I was the best senior pastor I knew when I was a youth pastor. (laughs) Okay? But here's the deal. With our work and in regards to our work, we can either make excuses or we can work towards execution. Here's the way that Solomon says it He says, In all toil, there's profit, but in mere what? Talk, it only tends towards poverty. I I read a study a number of years ago that said if you have an idea, like an idea for for a business, an idea for, if you've watched Shark Tank and you're like, Oh, I've got an idea. Here's what the experts, quote-unquote, would suggest to you. Don't talk about your idea. Don't, Don't share it with too many people and don't beat it to death. Don't talk about your idea. Work on your idea. And because here's what our brain does. When we start talking about something, we actually believe that we are doing it. Right? And there's a difference between talking about something and doing something. Okay. Now, if, if you're um, self-employed, you can just remind yourself of that. If you work for somebody else, your boss will thank you tomorrow. If you go in and go, hey, I'm not just going to talk about my job. I'm going I'm to do it. I'm going to do it. Here's one of the ma- main ways that we talk instead of working. We complain. We complain. The system isn't perfect. I'm not being treated right. This is somebody else's job, and those things all very well may be true. But what we're doing as we're complaining is we're convincing ourselves we're actually working when all we're doing is talking. So the scriptures will say in uh, Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, right after he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who um, being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but lowered himself to take on the nature of a servant. Paul will write this to the church at Philippi. Do How many things? All All things. So fill in your job, whatever it is, without grumbling or disputing, or NIV says, without complaining, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in a crooked and twisted generation among whom when you don't grumble or complain or dispute, dispute, you shine like lights in the world. You want to stand out in your workplace. Work. Work. Don't just talk. I'm serious. It will be, your boss will be like, something's different about that person. I can't put my finger on it. What is it that they're doing? They're working. You will rise to the top. I I love the way that Randy Posh put it. Um, He he wrote the book, um, The Last Lecture, shortly after he found out he had pancreatic cancer. He was a college professor, and he said this. He, He wanted to impart something to his students and he said, complaining does not work as a strategy. Hey, that's, that's tweetable, you, that's a tattoo, whatever you need to do to remember it. Complaining does not work as a strategy. We all have finite time and energy. And just a quick time out, complaining takes both. Anytime we spend time whining is unlikely to help us achieve our goals and it won't make us any happier. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So excuses give way to execution and, and talk, not just landing there, but actually leading to toil and work. And the second way it happens is in Proverbs 13, verse 4, it says this, the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. So here's what Solomon says to his son. Hey, son, he's like, look up at me just for a second. It's one thing to want something, it's another thing to work for something, and don't confuse the two. Don't confuse the two. Here's what we would call wanting something without being willing to work for it. There's a word for that. It's called entitlement. Entitlement. And in many ways, we're raising a very entitled generation where where they crave, but they're not willing to work. I'll put myself... That's my generation. We crave, but we're not willing to work. So we want the dream job without being ready or willing to work the entry-level position. Right? Here's what, here's what somebody who says, No, I'm just, I'm gonna work on execution, I'm not gonna make excuses. The person who makes excuses says, I'm only going to work hard when I get the job I really want and I really like. The person who values execution says, I'm going to work hard in any role that I'm in to do my best and to trust that God will lead and that God will provide. There's a difference. There's a difference. I love the way that Tom Nelson in his great book, Work Matters, says it. He says, work is where perseverance, proven character, and hope are deeply forged. Yes and amen. Yes and amen. Okay, so, so first, here's what we do. Here's how we throw it off. We, we allow excuses to give way to, to execution. Okay, second, a lot of verses coming at you, but we're just going to read through them, okay? Go to the ant, O sluggard, and con- consider her ways and be wise. Like, he's like, just look at, well, ants. okay? They're working pretty hard. The hand of the diligent, Proverbs 12, 24, the hand of the diligent will rule while the the slothful will be put to forced labor. Proverbs 15, 19. Um, The way of the sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. Proverbs 19, 24, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Uh, they thought it was so good. It's actually in Proverbs twice. <laughs> So's the lion in the street line. I love it. They're like, you can't miss this. Uh, can you just picture it? Like, can't even get his hand up to his mouth. Okay. Um, 26, 16. The sluggard is wiser than in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Yeah, but let's be real for a moment. Let's just. Step back. So the sluggard is somebody who is idle or habitually idle somebody who's lazy, and as you can see here, somebody who's distracted, and somebody who wants to fight against the wisdom that God's wired into creation to say that, no, hard work does pay off, hard work does provide for my family, hard work does all these things. The sluggard is one to sleep through his commitments and his work instead of actually being diligent. But the, song, or the Proverbs go on to say, but the plans of the diligent, the person who works hard even when it's hard, surely lead to abundance. Everyone who's hasty comes only to poverty. Here's the second movement. The first one is from excuses to execution. The second one is that exhaustion is abandoned for diligence. The sluggard is somebody who's exhausted, and we'll talk about why in a second. But the sluggard is somebody whose energy is just depleted constantly And always, the diligent is somebody who's working hard even when it's hard. Uh, My mind immediately went to as I thought about this and diligence. Immediately went to George Whitfield, the great preacher, American uh, English preacher of the 18th century. George Whitfield, before the times of planes and automobiles, preached to roughly 80 percent of the colonies in the 1700s. He gave 18,000 sermons. I mean, do the math. He didn't preach every single day even. If he would have, that would have been roughly, I think it was 48 or 49 years every day giving a sermon. He made seven trips from where he was born in England over to the United States, and during those times just preached up and down, up and down, up and down. He's one of the fathers of the first great, America, great, great awakening here in the Americas. Unbelievable man. Some would estimate that he preached to somewhere around 10 million people before there was internet. The dude would wake up at 4 a.m. in the morning and start preaching at 5 or 6 a.m., which by the way, we're starting our 5 a.m. service next week, okay? (laughs) I'm inspired. Let's do, I mean, who's there, right? Somebody else who's diligent and going, let's do this, right? I mean, can you imagine, though? And I'm not sure if he was cross-eyed. He is here, but I don't know. Uh, (laughs) Like like the artist, the artist couldn't have done him a solid, okay, whatever, but, but, unbelievable, unbelievable. When, when it was hard, he kept going. When it's hard at your workplace, what do you do? What do you do? See, and here's the reality, friends. Exhaustion isn't just from energy depletion. It's also from vision depletion. It's because we lose sight of the way God's at work within our work and the fact that there's a calling over our life and that God is good even in giving us this thing that we call work. See, I think people who navigate exhaustion well, they do two things. One, they understand that in life there are seasons. There are seasons. And Proverbs talks about this it says, A sluggard does not plow in autumn, and he will not seek at harvest, and he will seek at harvest and have nothing. See, what the book of Proverbs is saying is there's a, there's a time that you have to work and it's not all the time. It's not um, every single moment of every single day. There's seasons where you've got to press hard and there's things that you have to get done. Parents, you're not, every season is not going to be changing dirty diapers. It's not. Every season won't be getting woken up in the middle of the night, at least not for crying babies, maybe for other reasons, but that you won't be woken up in the middle of the night. Not all seasons are harvest seasons either. I think we lose energy and we turn towards exhaustion when we're hoping for the harvest and it's another season of sowing. So whatever season you're in right now in your workplace, will you recognize it's a season? In fact, will you say that with me? It's a season. Even if it's a really good season, it's just a season. If it's good, enjoy it. If it's difficult, endure it. And know that it, too, will pass. If you're sowing, if it's a sowing season, do it faithfully. But instead of embracing the season, what the sluggard does is the sluggard sleeps. And, and sleep is just simply an ancient escape. I, I was trying to imagine, what would it be if it were today? I think today it would be, um, well, it'd be um, this, right? It'd be social media. It'd be binging another Netflix show, Um, Or watching something else on TV, however we avoid diligence and slip into exhaustion. Have you ever realized that that binging that show on Netflix never actually feels good in the end? Like, nobody ever wakes up the next day and goes, now that was a good decision. (laughs) Nobody ever wakes up and goes, you know what, now since I spent the whole day on the couch, now I feel rested. Have you recognized that? It's not actually rejuvenating for our soul. It just occupies our brain for a moment, and then we're back, and we're like, "I'm exhausted." Like, you've watched how many seasons of The Office on Netflix? Like, what? Are anyway, okay. Here's the second thing. Say so we understand their seasons too, and then secondly, the people that navigate exhaustion well, they understand the value of planning. Okay. They understand the value of planning. A simple man believes anything, but a prudent man gives thoughts to his steps. And we can go into a number of different verses about the value of planning all throughout the Proverbs. Benjamin Franklin in one of his Proverbs said, if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. But if you have a plan, you know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel and and you're ready for the season that God has you in. Those two things go hand in hand. I'm going to fly through the rest of these. Here, number three. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Now, remember, principle, not promise. Not everybody that's skillful in their work is going to stand before kings. But the principle of the matter is, what do you focus on in your work? You don't focus on trying to get the promotion, You don't focus on trying to get the race. You don't focus on trying to climb the corporate ladder. What the book of Proverbs says is, listen, if you're skillful and if you're diligent, those things take care of themselves. Skillful could be um, also worded in the Hebrew is gifted, that this is something that's wired into your bones. Look at the skillful person in his work. Somehow God continues to rise that person to the top, not because they want to get there, but because they're excellent at what they do. Here's how we'll say it today, that we start to exchange instead of advancement. I want to make it to the next level. I want more people under me. I want the office in the corner, whatever it is for you. Instead of the focal point being, I want to continue to move up, the focal point is, I want to do what God has called me to do as best as I can. And I want to be a little bit better tomorrow than I was today. It's just chasing after excellence, not advancement. Excellence is important. I love the way that Dorothy Sayers, in in her great little essay called Why Work, which I'd highly recommend if you haven't read it, she says this. She says, the church has forgotten that the secular vocation is sacred, forgotten that a building must be good architecture before it can be a good church, that a painting must be well painted before it can be a good and sacred picture. That work must be good work before it can call itself God's work. Somebody say amen. 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 And what she's saying, excellence is important. We've got to take what we do seriously. And so my encouragement to you, and this comes from a lot of people that are way smarter than me, is instead of being goal-oriented or advancement-oriented, be growth-oriented. Think about how you want to continue to grow, whatever profession you're in, whatever vocation you're in, how do you want to continue to grow? And then trust that God will allow you to stand before whoever God wants you to stand before, but be growth-oriented instead of goal-oriented, instead of trying to climb the corporate ladder. One of the things I love about Proverbs is that it's followed by Ecclesiastes, so if you read both of them back to back, Proverbs paints this ideal, idealistic picture of the way that wisdom works in the world. And then Solomon goes, in Ecclesiastes, well, some of the time, that doesn't work. One of those times is when he talks about work. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, uh, he, he says this in verse 18. I hated all my toil. I'm like, Dude, we just got done taking advice from somebody who says, I hated my work. You're welcome. Just file those notes away. No, he's going to land the plane. But he says, I I hated all the toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. His son, right? He's like, I'm raising this moron who I'm going to have to give all of this to. Okay. Okay. That's true. That's what he's saying. I'm just reading between the lines a little bit. Not too much, right? But he's, rest, he's, he's where most of us are. We're going, man, we work so hard and we invest so much of our time and our energy into something that isn't going to last in the way that we hoped it would. That's his, that's his lament. And so then he comes to this conclusion in verse 24. He says this. He says, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and what? Find enjoyment in his toil. Not only in the work that he's doing, but in the fact that his work is producing. So in order to find enjoyment in your toil, you have to step back from your toil. You have to be willing to stop. You have to be willing to pause. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or have enjoyment? He goes, like, you've, you've got to press into God if those things are even going to be good or taste good or bring joy. Because they don't in and of themselves. Verse 26. For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting. This is the person who's unwilling to roll off their work to God. And to get only to give to one who pleases God, this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. And so here's what Solomon invites us to in Ecclesiastes: that yeah, work in and of itself is a dead end. But work under the banner of God's design and God's calling and God's goodness, and when we're willing to step back and enjoy it and recognize. Here's what Solomon is really wrestling with. I've built my identity in my work. And it can't handle that weight. I've put too much prominence in what I produce. And the recognition he comes to at the end of his life is, I can't take any of this with me when I go. And the person who rolls off their work or surrenders it to God makes him Lord of their life and Lord of their work is the person that's able to say, okay, God, and now I'm going to move from being disenchanted with work because it's not who I am and it's not all that I have and it isn't my identity and it isn't my idol. I'm giving it to you. The person who does that ironically steps into the joy of God's design in their work. I'm gonna invite Aaron to come up for just a moment and and lead us in one last song. But what is it for you? Where are you at with your work? Are you encouraged? Are you discouraged? Which of the which of those points that we talked about today? How do we how we roll off our work? Maybe it's just that. Maybe it's that surrender piece. It's excuses. Is it excellence? Is it delight? What is it for you? How does your work connect to God's design? See, because here's the beauty of where we find ourselves this morning, friends. The truth of the matter is that you and I are freed to work with confidence, that we're, we're freed to surrender our work to Jesus because Jesus has already completed the hardest work. The, the redemption, the hope, the restoration, you and I are free to spend those 10.5 years of our life working under the banner of his goodness and under the banner of his design Because the hardest work, reconciling us with God, has already been taken care of. And I've seen you live into this. Our high school students serving in Mexico a few weeks ago, I saw the pictures of the way that you lived into this. Our whiz kids tutors, I see the way that you live into this. The parents who care for special needs kids, I see the way you embrace your mantle of work. People who work hard in this place volunteering after they've worked hard in their jobs, I see the way that you're doing this, and it's beautiful and let's not leave it here. Let's carry it into our Monday also. Would you stand with me as we sing our benediction together? Lord, thank you for your design and work, your calling and work, and your blessing over work. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people who don't make excuses, but who work. That we would be people, Lord, who, who don't get exhausted or 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 understand that those are seasons and continue to work hard. And Father, that we would be the kind of people who find delight in our work because of your blessing over it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Would you sing with me? Let's just sing this, this line together. Multiply my life Take these feeble hands of mine I will work with all my might, if you'll just multiply, 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 and give it meaning. And would you go, and as you work, would you remember that God is always at work in you, through you, by his grace, by his spirit. Let's go and reflect back to the world, our great God, not just today, but nine to five every day. Amen? Amen. Have a great rest of your Sunday. God bless you.